KWFM, South Tucson. The views of this program are not necessarily those of KWFM, its management, or its sponsors. The host is solely responsible for the content. mission given to me by Woody Shaw, Sonship, Dizzy, and Billy Higgins, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my jazz heroes. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Welcome everybody inside the studios of KWFM 1330 The Star. This is the Jake Feinberg Program, and we're excited to have you along with us today on a beautiful Saturday afternoon here in the Old Pueblo. Everybody lives their lives in stages that change minute by minute. Fearlessness, reckless abandon. Others stifle their own creativity because of a lack of confidence, hope, despair, blessed forgiveness, and humility. It is rare that someone is able to encapsulate these emotions into art. My guest today is someone who poured his soul into his music. And this soul is sometimes filled with intensity and strength, fearlessness, reckless abandon, despair, and spiritual enlightenment. He has lived in urban centers, in the woods, collaborated with artists like Ndugu Chancellor, Denise Williams, Ralph McDonald, Ellen McElwain, Warren Smith, and his brother, bassist Don Moore. He has done and seen it all, including being a part of the heroic and courageous Freedom Riders. Jerry Moore, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, man. Thank you, Jake. It's nice to talk to you, my friend. Uh, My pleasure. The cosmos, the spirits. Yeah, they're still after me, man. And they're still after me, man. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, I mean, I mean, they're still after me, too, man. They still roll me so hard, man. <laughs> Jerry Moore, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. <laughs> All right, so, we got, you know, we're, we're playing it fast and loose. But I guess my point was, you know, I, I, was, I was reading last night on your, on your website about uh, the Freedom Rides, and, and it was so compelling. I mean, uh, and I just wonder you know, sort of the inspirations that, and the courage that it took to get and do those things, and what compelled you to do that? Okay. Well, what was happening, uh, you know, a lot of people think it was the first time, but uh, the rides had uh, happened in the 40s, and actually, but they didn't get that far into the south. They didn't get deep in, and they wanted to come deeper. I was uh, involved already in South Carolina, uh, we were doing sit-ins and demonstrating. We knew the rides were coming through. And uh, by the time they got to us in Sumter, uh, some of the riders had been detained or disappeared. They weren't sure where they were. So three of us from our student group joined the rides to make sure that they continued on. And uh, I don't know if that really answers the question. No, no, no. I, I want you to uh, keep, what cool. I'm saying is that you... you there was easily opportunity for you to turn away from it, but you didn't. No, as a matter of fact, I was actually I was not supposed to go. I had mentioned to my uh, 
parents when I was home uh, during Christmas vacation that uh, I was planning on going, and Mom got really upset, you know. Said, Ivor, tell that boy, talk to that boy, you know, uh, not to go, you know, and they were saying, well, you've done enough with the sit-ins and stuff we were doing. But when they got there, you know, there was a need, so we just filled the need. And, and uh, you know, Sumter has ramifications. I mean, that place was a hotbed of activity for the Confederacy during the Civil War. What was it, what was the, I mean, it must have been, the strife and the tension must have been there. I mean, were you able to, were you able to um, focus and block it out? And, or was it just, or did it galvanize you more to want to make a statement? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, we knew there'd be resistance. Um, I mean, at one point, I remember uh, the sheriff had uh, promised me a coffin. Right, right. That's right. That, that, and, that, uh, they, they promised you a coffin. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, <laughs> and Sumter, you know, like, well, a lot of people don't know, but it, it was a focal point because people used to say it was the birthplace of the White Citizens Council. Which I don't know whether it was a fact or not, but uh, it, it it just became important, you know. And a lot of the students that actually started the the sit-ins or the jail without bail, at in Rock Hill, uh, at a junior college, had come to Sumter. So it just became, uh, you know, like Sheriff Parnell is saying, was the niggas will never take Sumter, you know. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I took I took a, a history Civil War class to recertify as a as a teacher, be certified as a teacher of history, and uh, and my professor was uh, very uh, adamant about. You know, he taught me about how, how the, the 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 battles that were waged there, and uh, and the ferocity of which the uh, WCC, you know, the, they really fought. You know, uh, f- they were they were true Confederacy through and through. So, I I, I say to myself. Um, when you jumped on that bus, was it uh, primarily like you would get into sit-ins? Would there be uh, acoustic music going on? W- were there drums? What kind of music would you w- were uh, carrying you through this trip? Oh, oh, no, 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 no. When we got to different places, uh, no, we didn't have drums and stuff. There would be like at different places, pianos or guitars and. Uh, this is on, you're talking about on the ride down, right? I guess my, my overall question is to keep the morale high and to keep you upbeat, what kind of music were you playing and were you hearing? Okay, yeah, well, we were just singing, we were singing those good old uh, spirituals that have been turned into freedom songs, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, and, uh, you know, if you miss me from the back of the bus, you know, you can't find me nowhere. Could you could you sing a little bit? I would love to. I could, I want to hear it with your voice. <laughs> okay. If you miss me from the back of the bus and you can't find me nowhere, come on over to the jailhouse. I'll be no. Oh, come on up to the front of the bus. I'll be riding up there, and the thing going ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Turn me around. Turn me round, ain't gonna let nobody turn me round. But keep on walking, keep on talking, marching up to freedom land. You know those kind of. Oh, songs. that's great! Yeah. Thank you so much. Yes, yeah, I mean that. That's uh, so that really came out of the uh, the gospel, though. I mean that was that was stuff that was 
you were singing those types of spirituals. Oh yeah, and uh, you know a lot of it was you know acapella and stuff, but it was man, it was moving. You know, and it, it was inspirational. You know, because it encouraged you. You know, you just it kept the uh, you know you knew what you were going to face, and you knew there'd be brutality, maybe even die. You know, but uh, you just you went. You know, and those songs, and you went and come. You know, everybody was together. You know, a lot of people don't realize on the Freedom Rides that uh, probably 30 to 40 percent of the riders were white, and uh, 80 percent of those were Jewish, the white riders. Yeah, it doesn't. It, that that is really beautiful to hear. Um, I, I just think you know, oppressed people, you know, can bond in that way, um, and there's no doubt that. Um, or people that are just kept down for no reason other than their ethnicity or their color of their skin. So I mean, I, I it, it doesn't surprise me at all. But it, there, there, there was a. Um, it, I, I look at it and without getting too deep into sociology. It's just you know there was just such an overt racist tendency. I mean, you'd have people being beaten, hosed down, flogged, dogs attacking them. I mean, these were vis- visuals that were showing up on the TV screens, and I don't care how uptight or how loose or liberal you or conservative you were you you had to be just abhorred by those scenes and then also taking into account boy these people are willing to put their lives on the line they must really care about what they're fighting for i mean it it, it for black and white people for for uh for simplistic people it they could see it was wrong too as opposed juxtaposed to today which is just more covert and scheming and then obviously the uh, the ultimate corruptor being uh money yeah yeah when did you? Yes. My question is: When did you actually, uh, uh, Dudley Randall? When did you discover him? Was he on these rides with you, or did you only discover his writings after? No, no. I uh, let's see. I discovered them. It was after. It was just before uh, the assassination of Kennedy, John Kennedy, uh, because I remember because uh, you know at that point. You know, I would be doing music. We were organizing for voter registration and stuff like that. And I had found, it was in some newspaper, his poem about the Ballad of Birmingham. And I had set it to music. So we were singing it as we went around. And I remember it was right around then because I think that was the, uh, I think it was going to be the first time I did it. And we were at a school. And uh, when uh, I was getting ready to sing it, and we got word that uh, President Kennedy had been assassinated. Wow. The day of that you were going to perform it? Yeah. Wow. Unbe- so let me just be clear, though. Not, not not the dressed all in pink, not the Kennedy song. Yeah. Yeah, With no. Well, but, but as far as when you said you put music to it, um, does that mean that you also figured out how you were going to sing it as well, or was, ju- was it just the instrumental stuff? Oh, no, no, to sing it, yeah, because at that point, yeah, because, you know, I had the guitar. I had picked up the guitar and uh, had learned, you know, I had basic chords down. And so I, I used to, before that, you know, growing up in the Bronx and stuff, so I used to, when I was junior high school and I started writing, I used the piano, but uh, while I was in college, I picked up the guitar, so I just, uh, you know, put the chords together and the melody and stuff. Well, let's just cut to the chase and... Uh and cue this puppy up and come back and we'll talk about it in just a little bit, okay? Okay, cool.
few out to the fellow brothers All they profess to know Bobby takes a look at the world Is this what I can't go take me for? Empty room, me and the clock Where I used to hear my baby breathing I remember your baby On a cold winter Just one of the funkiest grooves of all time, man. That that is awesome. Yeah, you're a good <laughs> You know, it's so funny to listen. I mean, what I love the most is just, uh, Ralph Ralph McDonald just holds that that shaker, and uh, uh-huh. and Warren just keeps that beat. And I just what I love most about it is the idea that the the, the looseness and the relaxedness, the relaxed atmosphere there. I mean, it wasn't like it, there was just there was a real vibe and you could feel it and it, it pours through the entire album yeah yeah because that's that's uh it's funny because the way it worked you know i would just come in uh like warren would set the groove or if there were some changes i would uh on one or two songs i would just tell him pretty much eric would you know get the thing down most of it i didn't bring you know i, I wrote I'm hearing a lot of echo, man. <laughs> Keep going, you're good. Anyway. I try to talk through it. Okay, well, cool. And, uh, you know, I think maybe on one or two of the songs we did that I, I wrote out uh, the changes on a piece of paper. But basically, like on the, on the album, I put down the range by, uh, I just put everybody's first initial, came up with the name Jabru, you know. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we just, you know, we went for it, and it was, it was a guess. That particular song, I really like, except, you know, I remember at the time, my mother, when she heard it, she said, you had to be smart and sensational, and we can't show anybody that church that song. And, and now, I, uh, 
I don't know. I keep saying, man, I hope the kids of Sunday school don't hear it. But <laughs> I really enjoyed the group. But maybe they, maybe um, they do need to hear it, you know? Yeah. But then again, you know, I mean, that period of time, certain things in, in there, you know, about, uh, I guess, would be politically incorrect or, you know, sexist, considered to be sexist nowadays. Or, yeah, I think know, oh, what's the, what's the thing from... Uh, politically correct? Forbit, uh, because you don't know, use the word. Uh, well, I guess it's a different F word. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, no, uh, so, I mean it's. it's but it, we did cut the F word out of the out of the song. But Bernard, uh, you know, Stallman, the company, he pretty much, you know, I told him, I said, man, I got to cut this thing back. And uh, but uh, yeah, at the time we did it, also Alderson, Richard Alderson, who was producing it. I heard him yelling something about, whoa, it's going to be a court case, but I didn't really get it. You know, then I just had written a song. Actually, I was trying, when I post that song, like do a Kerouac thing, you know, with a free flow mm -hmm. in the writing of it. Sure. And then find a theme to tie together. Uh, I had some old lyrics I had written all the way back in junior high school, but parts of the poem and stuff, and to bring it up and just to make it all work, you know. Uh, it wasn't truly completely free flow, but the idea was, you know. No, and, and, and I, I, I just like the rolling uh, lyrics. It, it just they they just keep pulsating. Although I will say, in that mix, listening back, Eric is is distant in the mix. But you know what? Um, uh, we're joined here by Jerry Moore, and I promise you, the spirits are going to control themselves, and we're going to mellow out and have a really, really. We're going to go to the news break here, come back, and we're going to talk Woodstock. We're going to talk the working band. We're going to talk Children of God. Uh, we're joined here by Jerry Moore, a spiritual guy and an amazing musician. Jerry, hang tight, and we'll come back okay. on the other side, okay? All right. This is the Jake Feinberg Show on KWFM, 1330. Stay right there. The Jake Feinberg Show will be right back. One of President Richard Nixon's White House lawyers has died at the age of 80. Colson was one of seven people involved in the Watergate break-in, and he went to jail for it. Colson became a Christian evangelical while in prison and later founded the Prison Fellowship Ministries to help inmates and ex-cons. George Zimmerman, the gunman who shot and killed Trayvon Martin, will remain in jail. For now, his company couldn't raise the bail of $150,000 that would have freed him today. Mark Sullivan, head of the United States Secret Service, has briefed President Obama on the agency's prostitution scandal. NBC's Kristen Welker. Director Sullivan didn't want to sit down with the president until he had a clearer grasp of what actually happened and then also until he could say we are moving forward with this investigation swiftly. Six Secret Service agents have either been fired or have retired and more than 200 people have been interviewed in the ongoing investigation. This is NBC News Radio. Every so often, the stars are in perfect alignment, and during the Lincoln Certified Pre-Owned Sales Event, now is that perfect moment. For a limited time, get 0.9% APR on the Certified Pre-Owned Lincoln of your choice, which comes with the confidence of our six-year, 100,000-mile comprehensive warranty. The Lincoln Certified Pre-Owned Sales Event, exclusively at your Lincoln dealer. APR varies by term. Not all buyers will qualify for Lincoln Automotive Financial Services Limited Term Financing. Take delivery from dealer stock by 43012. See dealer for qualifications, limited warranty, and complete details. Love your Pandora bracelet. Oh, thanks. He went to Jared. That's Jared. 
Whether you're looking for charms, rings, or bracelets, you'll find the Pandora collection at Jared the Galleria of Jewelry to be truly remarkable, with literally hundreds of designs. Only the store with five times the selection of ordinary jewelry stores could bring you a Pandora collection like this. Life has its moments. Make them unforgettable with Pandora Jewelry at Jared. It can only be Jared. One thing I've learned on my journey to help save people money on car insurance is that folks across the country like convenience. And what could be more convenient than visiting Geico.com, where you can manage your policy, pay your bill online, just about anything you need. And it's open 24-7. It's kind of like popping into the ultimate convenience store. Except we save people money. And we don't have beef jerky. For a free rate quote, visit Geico.com to see how much you could save. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Love your Pandora bracelet. Oh, thanks. He went to Jared. That's Jared. Whether you're looking for charms, rings, or bracelets, you'll find the Pandora collection at Jared the Galleria of Jewelry to be truly remarkable, with literally hundreds of designs. Only the store with five times the selection of ordinary jewelry stores could bring you a Pandora collection like this. Life has its moments. Make them unforgettable with Pandora Jewelry at Jared. It can only be Jared. In this day and age, people have a lot to protect. You want to know that when you're insuring valuable goods, you have an agent you can trust. Craig Pretzinger is that agent. For auto, home, and life insurance, the Pretzinger Agency is Tucson's most honest and flexible insurance company. Have off-road vehicles or motor homes? Pretzinger can cover that as well. Pretzinger Agency at 299-5810, located across the street from Sullivan Steakhouse on the southwest corner of River and Camp. Trust, compassion, and service. The whole package at Pretzinger Agency. Call 299-5810 or text quote to 520-582-5150. 520-582-5150. Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. One of the first things I wanted to do when I moved to Tucson was find authentic Chinese cuisine. After a tip from the Chinese Student Association, I headed over to Badar Chinese Restaurant. Well, it's been seven years, and I have never looked back. Located at 7321 East Broadway Boulevard, Badar has been a family-run operation since 1992. The award-winning chef produces succulent dishes from sizzling ginger chicken to salt and pepper shrimp. The thing that separates Badar from the rest is that the chef procures ancient oriental dishes with the exotic island flair of Taiwan. Most importantly, there are no gimmicks or razzle-dazzle at Badar. You won't find any flat-screen TVs or karaoke machines. Badar is a place to go enjoy good food and spend time with your family. It exudes peace and tranquility after a long week of work. So come down and check out Badar Chinese Restaurant. Hong Hao Chu, it's that good. Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. When it came time to decide where to buy my daughter a piano last year, the choice was easy. We got it at Hackenberg & Sons Piano Company. Located at 4333 East Broadway Boulevard, Hackenberg & Sons is Tucson's longest-running family-owned piano business. Run by three brothers and a son, they pride themselves on superior instruments and customer satisfaction. It's why they've been around so long. And it's why their pianos are used at the University of Arizona, Pima Community College, and many other prestigious institutions. So whether it's for your child, business, or yourself, when you buy a piano, make sure you go to Hackenberg & Sons. It'll be the beginning of a long-lasting partnership. For more information, visit them at hackenbergpiano.com. Even the ancient Romans knew that music can soothe the savage beast. But what if there's a beast lurking in your old stereo? Maybe it's popping static, garbled distortion, a skip in the record, or worse, dead silence. 
Stereo Hospital can restore smooth sound to your receiver, amp, turntable, CD player, or speakers. At the same Midtown location, 4044 East Speedway for 10 years, Stereo Hospital might be the last shop in town doing quick, guaranteed repairs on vintage and modern stereos. Owner Jeff Brucker has over 40 years experience as an electronic technician and he is happy to bring back the joy and memories only your music collection provides. Log on to StereoHospital.com or call 722-4610 or just bring that mean old stereo in today. Stereo Hospital at 4044 East Speedway inside Metronome Music near Alvernon to calm the beast. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Be a part of a new coalition with Jake Feinberg. The second half of my show starts right now. Welcome back, everybody, to the Jake Feinberg Show, and the spirits are well at work here. We're joined by uh, a legendary musician, uh, Jerry Moore. Jerry, welcome back. Before we uh, before we even continue on with the banter, I, I just want to punch the spirits in the face right now and let them let them hear a little bit more of the of the working band. Hit it.
track was uh, Out of the Blue by the Jerry Moore Working Band. Talk a little bit about that band, if you would. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, story, that, okay, it was, it was in three different phases. You know, the first one was uh, uh, Greg Googie Jackson played bass, uh, Mark uh, Mazur on guitar, and Graham Blackburn on horns and flutes, and uh, Richie Vita played drums. Tagliano. Yeah, and uh, the, what happened, that band started, I was, uh, after children split up, you know, I was doing gigs alone, solo gigs, you know, playing around, whoever needs some money, go out, and uh, one night, uh, Greg posted asked me if he could play, I said, yeah, and then uh, before the, the end of the next set, uh, Mark came up and asked if he could join, so then uh, after that gig, they were saying, well, we put together a band. You know, and not to do any recording. I told him I said I wasn't I wasn't looking to go do any more record deals or anything, and just for gigging. You know, so we called it the Jerry Moore Work Band. Was the name that came up with it. And then uh, when that split up, Mark uh, Martha Velez, uh, Keith Johnson uh, was her husband, and Martha, you know, she had done uh, with original hair, and and uh, she'd done an album, Fiends and Angels, I think. It's and it was real kind of classic with uh, Eric Clapton and Jack Bruce and all those guys. But uh, she'd had a baby, so she uh, was looking to start singing again. So Keith approached me about, uh, you know, her coming and doing bad. Did you hear that? Yeah, I <laughs> so, that's, yeah. A, that's our so, song. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So she came and... Uh, I'm, 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 I'm humbled right now, so don't worry. <laughs> so we started, uh, uh, you know, that was like phase two, and that evolved actually into a group we called, ended up being called Jerry Moore Montevallez Show and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Right. And uh, I don't know, you know, we we got to open for a lot of people, stylistics, Sly and Family Stone. Uh, Mark, when he left the band, he went and played with Stevie Wonder for a while, and then uh, I can't remember the guy's name. It was the guy. Uh, played the accordion and started wearing the zoot suits <laughs> and uh then what happened can you i just want to ask you a question can you pl- i mean yeah. i was obsessed with uh i still am with uh, jerry garcia and he played with his band the garcia band played at the chance in poughkeepsie in 83 and it just i became fascinated with this club called the chance and i'm like could 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 jerry talk a little bit about playing in Town with the working band and sort of those upstate new york gigs Socrates, you know, Mount Auburn, you know, the kind of vibe, this, uh, this, this upstate, uh, New York vibe that was so powerful. Oh, like the last, uh, last chance saloon. Uh, yeah, man, that was, uh, that had been all the way back from vaudeville days, you know? And, uh, when we were playing there, uh, especially with Martha, and we threw lines, you know, it started off the first time we went to play because it, it, it Kind of been pretty dead, and uh, we went and played. You know, first there it was pretty much at our own expense, but you know, over a few months it built. Man, there were long lines, and people would come and jam, and it, it was just hot. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It. Uh, all <laughs> we would, uh, you know, people let people jam, and that's that's something you know I didn't run into here in California, where you know other musicians would come play the jam, and guys would end up in bands and. You know, even with the world, uh, the kind of vibe it was was to me the uh, like at the festival in Woodstock, for instance. The uh, 
I mean, oh, Lincoln Slifer's bass player, killer bass player with the, the General Work Band there. Uh, I had gone back to, like, F, Martha went and she did some recording for, uh, where Bob Molly produced this record for her. Mm-hmm. I think she's the only person outside of his family that uh, he ever produced. And uh, I had gone off to do the Sussex recording, so I was back in town, and, you know, if I needed some money, I went out and did gigs, so... Uh, Morning, this guy Lincoln showed up at my door, said he wanted to play, and I said, "Well, I wasn't looking at gig or anything, but I, the dude came back three or four times, you know." So I told him, "I said, uh, okay, you put some guys together, and I'll show up for the gig, mm-hmm. you know." And he did, and I showed up for the gig, <laughs> and uh, then he got Pepe Pabon out of New York to play drums with us, and, and it took off. Man, it's just like, uh, but it, you know, it was free. Like a lot of times, I would start songs at the gig, uh, the guys didn't know, and uh, Robin Sturgeon, was the, the guitar player, was telling me at first it used to drive him and Lincoln crazy, but uh said it helped them get the chops together, and uh, Lincoln came out here with uh, five blind boys of Alabama, and uh, he told me that he got that gig because of that experience, he learned how to just, you know, you know, on the fly to do stuff, and he ended up playing with Donald McDonald and bunch of different people did you, did you i mean the did vibe was open i would let people sit in uh you know it, you know i mean people jammed I, I mean all bands crossed you know i got i found a tape where uh at one time don had a band called return of the kings <laughs> and they were hot man just hot hmm. punk band. and uh i'm trying to place what the occasion was but it was like the work band uh his band, and then we were all with Martha at this uh, at the Last Chance Saloon. I don't know what the occasion. I don't remember what the occasion was, but you know, people, different groups just crossed back and forth. And during that time, like uh, the guys from the band, I know uh, Rick used to come down Banco with mm-hmm. him, and you know, do that interface with Butterfield, and um, I mean, you know. People coming in town. Orleans was there in town. Taj came up and lived for a while. Hendrix was up there, you know, living for a while. And uh, Mingus, so, Mingus, I mean, Mingus went up there, but also, but so yeah. I, I find that I, I just wanted to, to first of all, uh, I want to pay tribute on my show to uh, to one of the greatest uh, drummers of all time. Uh, he left us yeah. this week. Uh, uh, he's been spending. He spent a majority of his life. Uh, he grew up in Arkansas. He was a dirt farmer through and through. But uh, spent some time in Canada as well. But uh, Levon Helm was a Woodstock right. guy through and through. And 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 it's it's it warms my heart to know that there was a period in music history where Jerry Moore and the Working Band might have been at the old, uh, Mount Temper, you know, saloon or the old, you know, whatever it might be. You know, one of these old sort of um, you know, clubs, you know, with a with a bar and some table seating, and and uh, to know that you know guys like Danko and Manuel and Levon Butterfield, you guys would cross paths and maybe play a little bit. To me, that was you were salvaging uh, the the authenticity, whatever remained in music. I mean, there was it was the, nobody was there to get rich. It was there to just play. Yeah, it was. You know what Levon was doing? Because uh, Lincoln was playing with him over the last couple of years, like, in his house. He turned it into a... The Midnight Ramble. Like, where he performed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool when different guys go out and play, you know. Wait, I, uh, did you ever actually... Did you wind up on uh, this Martha Velez album, Hypnotized? 
I'd have to go. You know what? I'd have to look at the songs on it. Uh, I got I got two bridges, Black Rose, Space King, Living Outside the Law, Bird Cliff, Summer. Oh no no, we did those tunes. We did them, but the they uh, for the actual album, uh, they they uh, if I remember correctly, they used uh, the the musicians, the producer did. Uh, my question is this: Okay, so just try to put put it in perspective for me, like Ellen. The Ellen and Martha both went to were working for. Uh, they got contracts with Polydor to cut albums, but uh, that, say that again. I'm sorry. Uh, Ellen McElwain and Martha both were cutting albums oh, yeah. for Polydor. You know the company, and I just want to know why uh, they were not allowed to handpick their musicians. It surprises me that you would have played with these women, and then they then you wouldn't have showed up on the album. Well, with Martha, uh, I think at that point, uh, what's his name, was looking at trying, he wanted to manage, uh, I think, pretty much Martha. And, uh, no, no, it was the record company. I was going to say uh, Bonetta, but no, he, he was trying to manage. But I don't think he made that decision. It was the record companies, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, you're saying why didn't... Uh, well, I don't know. She got some people that she wanted. I think on one or two albums, she got uh, uh, some sissy uh, Houston and those guys to do some backups and stuff. No, I mean it just—it seems the way you portrayed the, you know, that band. It was hot. You guys were playing. You were gigging, and you clearly had chemistry. And why she wouldn't go into the studio with that band doesn't make it. I guess that's just the business aspect of it. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Her contract was uh, with them. You know. But you—you you truly. I mean. Jerry, I mean, you have been uh, grasping to go back to the roots music uh, for a long time. You have these reunion bands, um, you know, in Woodstock with your brother. Uh, the The element of the the business side of things never appealed to you. It was really about the intimacy of the performers, and most importantly, finding guys that you enjoyed playing with. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I thought it was interesting this. One article uh, was in Wax Poetic, mm-hmm. and uh, the guy, I mean, I never spoke to him, but he said uh, in it that uh, Jerry Moore turned his back on the music industry. And as I was reading it, you know, I thought, oh, I never thought of it that way. But, uh, yeah, you know, at, at one did, point did he, I just, did he Did he say what he meant? Did he, did he flesh it out with specifics? Did he just say it as a blanket statement? Yeah, it was a blanket statement. Well, that's pretty well, weak. Well, he was saying... <laughs> That uh, you know, but I knew I, a lot of I thought what he said came from Bernard because he used the term became a a, a street preacher. I think is the way he put it in Los Angeles, and that was uh, sort of Bernard's take on what what I what I ended up doing, being involved with the uh, you know working with the homeless and stuff. Well, we're going to talk about that too. I just wanted to uh, we're talking with uh, Jerry Moore and. Um, Jerry, I'm going to play another clip of music. He, you were kind enough to send me a, a, just a, a bushel full of, of good tunes. and uh, Let's check this out, and we'll, we'll come back and talk about it, okay? All right. Talking, frighten you away. 
Jerry Moore? Yeah. Are you, is, is that the real Don Moore on bass? Yeah. No, no, that's my brother, Don Moore. No, his email his email is the real Don Moore. That's why I said it. Oh, that's his email, yeah. yeah. No, but, but I mean, yeah, that, and he was, that, I mean, I can only imagine what his bands, I want you to talk about your relationship with your brother because that bass playing, that was Boogie Woogie, Soul, and everything it was so beautiful, man. Because that, that was that's that's the kind of bass playing that I just I, I love so much. Plus those lyrics over the top. But your brother, what a smoking! I mean, he'll be he'll be on the show at some point. But why don't you talk about your relationship with him musically and personally? Okay, uh, gee, you know, well, growing up, we just uh, you know, I guess I was the big brother, and uh, I didn't. Well, when we moved into to the Bronx, I know Kenny Nimrod was our neighbor. And, uh, you know, because back then it was a lot of, you know, doo-wop singing, you know, street acapella, street corner singing. And Donald and Kenny, and I don't know if you recognize his names, uh, uh, Pompanato, Joey Pompanato, and Frank Gallagher. The guys that ended up being in RBQ, they all had a group together with Donald singing. Mm-hmm. And once or twice I was, uh, like, I remember he was, uh, he had to go to camp in the summer, so I did the lead for him. And, uh... So all those guys evolved into doing music and playing. Donald actually started playing sax. You know, I played trumpet and uh, up to junior high school, and Donald was playing saxophone. What, what, what were, you guys, uh, were you guys like Clifford Brown, Ben Webster kind of stuff? What, who, what would you guys model yourselves after? Oh, and don't say no, but we weren't. No, no. I think I I was chasing on the trumpet. I was chasing Miles. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, Miles oh, and uh, you know. I mean, there are other guys. I like you know the music, but uh, right. you know, right. basically, I think that was the only thing. And Donald actually, Donald picked up the bass when he was in college. He was out of Bowling Green University, and he put together a little band to to gig. So he picked up the bass then. And then when he came back, I already had uh, the, the group. We were already—I think it was already doing *Children of God*, the first phase of it. And uh, he moved upstate, New York, you know. And uh, so, because you know, the times I look at it and I say, "Why didn't we play together more?" You know. And uh, I, I think part of it was that you know when we played together with *Children*, and then when when that split off, uh, I ended up in the city. And uh, almost back to your other question before the, that little break, the song, because it kept ending up doing uh, a lot of benefits and a lot of stuff for causes, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and even got the rep of being uh, uh, the benefit king, <laughs> which not. But Donald, man, I love his music. He's got it's so funky. His songs are so good, man. And uh, and whenever we harmony i guess a lot of it came out of church you know my mother playing we would sing in church together uh as a family and the harmonies we just always just you know it's easy you know because uh 
I can start something and he'll be right on it, or he can start something and after that, I'll just fall right in on it because, you know, we knew it. And, uh, no, he's just uh, really, really, uh, yeah, I hope you do get him on there. And, uh, like, I know I tried to call him now. He's doing a, a revival and uh, he's in Florida right now. What what do you have to say about um, these uh, the uh, what, what you call you, you said you were the uh, the cause king you, you you were you played a lot of benefits the benefit king <laughs> yeah and and uh, uh-huh. just before we go to a break here I just wanted you to talk a little bit about the idea of uh, always having to play for the art of it and never and and having a monetary the monetary thing being kind of secondary or tertiary and how you how quickly you rationalize that in your career in about two minutes? I always blew it. I would always try to go say, you got to be practical, pragmatic. You need money to live. <laughs> but I would always blow it. <laughs> you know, we end up doing benefits and stuff, you know. And, uh, and, and then, you know, I think the whole thing, the part of the 60s was people talking about integrity and your, your art, you know. And I, when I left Columbia, when I walked away from Columbia early on, I thought that's what I was going to do, you know, because I was going to have the right to do, make my own choices about music. I'd do some chord and stuff. I was a little bit naive because I didn't really totally understand the whole, you know, the technical side of recording and all that, what, what all was involved. But, I mean, you know, y- yeah, it's, it's just, it. as, we, as we go to a break here, uh, you know, Jerry Moore... Um, uh, just an amazing talent and and clearly misunderstood and in some ways blackmailed by certain people in the industry and we're going to talk a lot more about the holistic approach of the uh, the more philosophy uh, since he's moved to the city of angels uh, when we come back on the other side here with a special edition of the Jake Feinberg show um, this is KWFM 1330 the star Jerry hang tight we'll be back in just a little bit CBS News. I'm Sam Litzinger. Some called him the evil genius of the Nixon administration. He had no knowledge or involvement in the Watergate. Charles Colson, who was the president's special counsel during the Watergate scandal, once said he'd walk over his grandmother to get his boss elected to a second term. He's died at age 80. Historian Douglas Brinkley. Welcome, everybody, to a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show, rollover edition, in fact. And Jerry, first question for you out of the box. Are you sad of, with the loss of Chuck Colson? Hello? Yeah, Jerry, are you, are, you, are you upset with the loss of Chuck Colson? What about the loss of him? I'm, I know about it, yeah. No, I'm, I mean, I mean, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is I just find it ironic that you know, this guy who who's at the... Uh, the core of, of really the administration that sent us into a downward spiral has, has passed. And, you know, I was wondering if you, uh, you know, it was just, it was somewhat of a joke, but, um, you know, it, I mean, that, 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 I think part of the reason you guys had so much on your minds and you were able to script things and talk about things was because 
there was really a lot of uh, experiential stuff going on. You had the Vietnam War. You had, you know, the collapse of the executive branch, and as well as, uh, you know, uh, you had, uh, you know, the judiciary branch caught up in all sorts of these women's rights issues at the time. It seemed like uh, we became extremely human uh, during the uh, the early 70s. And uh, I was wondering about uh, if you could talk a little bit about uh, after Children of God and you got your footing and you were going into academia and you decided to leave. Um, when did you, uh, you know, what was the next step in your existence in, in, in music? And aside from paying the bills, uh, you know, were you in a good place at that point? Okay, not, what had happened, uh, there were some buildings up, uh, Kingston is right near Woodstock. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there were some buildings, and this guy had, uh, his name was Ron, he had this idea of uh, taking these old buildings down on the waterfront uh, to fix them up, and the people that worked on them would own their own apartments and stuff. And so some guys at IBM <clears throat> had sold a couple buildings to them for a buck, you know, like not-for-profit. Not so we had done a benefit to help them raise the money for that. And uh, some time had passed, and I went and checked at one point, you know, how's it going, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it turned out he'd pretty much been run out of town. And uh, this one guy who was the treasurer, but the way he'd set up the uh, the papers for their uh, uh, their not-for-profit, no one person could be, you know, could sell it out. And uh, this one guy was telling me how he'd been threatened and stuff. So me not having a job working like for IBM or any company that could be threatened because I had the independence of being a musician, right? Mm-hmm. I went over and approached. The, the city of Kingston, and it was funny when I first walked in on them, uh, the building people, because they were trying to take the buildings away from, from the group. Sure. Uh, I had this dashiki and this big afro, you know, and uh, all <laughs> oh, we could. <laughs> so I walked in, man, these guys were like, whoa, up against the wall, you know. And uh, <laughs> after we talked for a while, and, uh, then they told me, said, no, I was going to cost X amount of millions of dollars to get the stuff done and, you know, kind of threw a challenge at me about it, you know. Uh, can you do it? So that set me off on finding people all around the country, actually, that were doing similar things with buildings and different projects. And then here's the outside thing, man. Uh, Eddie, that had been in Children of God, uh, <clears throat> he had gone with, uh, remember Dreams? Uh, sure. Brecker Brothers. Oh, yeah. Anyways, Billy Cobb, yeah. <clears throat> huh? Uh, Billy, Billy Cobb played drums, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, anyways, he had, uh, after the band, he had he ended up uh, being the head of this one organization in the Bronx that was restoring buildings, you know? And so that put us back together. Uh, and he came on up. And, what? well, long story short, we were able to save the building. Uh, but... During that period of time, the guys in the band and the work band would say, hey, man, we need to live, you know. And and so the, the work band, Jerry Moore, work band just finally, you know, it went. Uh, so I was totally broke. I did have a chance at that point. Uh, they said I could have gotten a grant for the building uh, to be the head of an arts, uh, community arts development thing, mm-hmm. and which would have brought me 30, 40 grand a year. But I felt that uh, I couldn't really do that because uh, it would look like, you know, maybe it didn't for the money, you know. 
So I had a girlfriend who had come out here. Martha was out here in California. Keith was out here, a bunch of people. <clears throat> uh, Sam Keith, the Keith, I think was Sam's last name, who grew up with us in the Bronx, was the head of uh, one of the biggest uh, booking agencies out here. And all these people in the industry would tell me, you know, come on out, man, you know, why are you staying up in the mountains? You know, everybody's in position. So I came on out. Uh, <laughs> everybody's in position. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I love, so this. I I love the terminology. That's great. <laughs> well, position to be helpful. Oh, absolutely. I, I get it. I get it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, Cynthia was her name. She told me, come out. Don't worry about you know, we don't have to hook up or anything. I'm, I'm working a job. You can just write your music. And if you get a good deal, uh, you know, uh, just remember I helped you, you mm -hmm. know. Right. But, uh, you know, that was set up, I guess. Anyways, what happened, I ended up becoming uh, a father, the mama, papa, and the play group because I was working at nights, you know, doing music. I even did some uh, street singing. Uh, passing the basket on the street. Mm -hmm. it was a really interesting experience. And busking, I think, is the term they use in Europe. But uh, what happened was, uh, so I I was still doing some gigs, and uh, I, I I just got to the point, like I started thinking about my son, you know, not going on the road, not seeking out there to do, you know. Uh, and I think one of the things that really nailed it for me was one night I had come home after a gig, I picked up my son from the babysitter. I came home. Uh, his mother and I had split. And uh, one of the guys in the band had climbed through the window, and he was in, in the apartment with a couple of people, you know, uh, women getting high and stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, nah, that ain't going to work, you know. And uh, I don't know, but then it, it, it was almost like a Richard Pryor comedy. <laughs> right, right. You know? Right, right. Everything right. just started boom, boom, exploding. And, and it was almost like I was going to, you know, it... It was like I was going to end up on the streets or something, you know. It was like everything was falling apart, and I just, uh, I don't know. I, I, it was like the doors, the way the doors started opening, you know, it was like a God thing, man. It's just uh, the, the way the doors just started opening. I was going to quit doing music. You know, I had started feeling guilty about uh you know, I said, well, if it was a gift, you know, all we did was glorify a lot of negative stuff and, you know, how much misery and cause in different women's lives, you know, because of things that they might have to try and take care of, you know. And uh, I, you, you ready for this? I'm t let me see how quickly I can run this. By. Mm -hmm. I, uh, so I was going to quit. I didn't tell anybody I was going to quit because I knew everybody would say don't. I was playing this gig on, on the pier here in Santa Monica Pier. And I was driving a cab part-time. So uh, this, this woman, Helena Pusima, great singer, man, great singer, that I had worked with for a while as a singing waiter. And uh, she, uh, she she was coming down to the place on, on the pier. She'd come down to jam. And these people were coming with her from her church, right? And uh, they kept inviting me to go over to sing. And uh, I was like, nah, I don't know, you know, you know, I... I don't think the last time I went, they were Catholic, and it was a Catholic church. Last time I was in a Catholic church, it was all Latin, you know. Right. And uh, so what happened, I snuck over one evening, and they were doing, like, praise and worship music, you know, which was cool. And then they had this, uh, 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 
I wouldn't sing for the fear they were having. You know, I talked to mom about it. Mom said, no, that's cool, go sing, you know. Right. And uh, what happened after that, after I sang there, I prayed about it. You know, I said, well, okay, God, should I quit, you know, or not? So take this. The, uh, you got to remember, I was a guitar player, right? So now this priest gave me an electric piano, Cinder Rhodes, right? <laughs> oh, that's great. And out of the blue, and I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay, is that the answer to prayer? I don't know what we're Catholic, you know? Yeah, right. Catholic, I don't know. Maybe it can't be the answer to prayer. So uh, then I get this thing in my head called Mike Ruff. I don't know if you know Mike. He was playing sessions for everybody out here, all the Motown people and stuff. And Donald had brought him to Woodstock, and he was out here. And <clears throat> the thing, Mike, was call Mike, ask him if he's got anything he's not using, just like that. And I call him and say, Mike, you got anything you're not using? And uh, First he said no, and he said, yeah, I got a Prophet 5. So now I had two keyboards, right? Wow. And I'm saying, okay, is this, you know, is this God, you know, is this the answer? And then when I was driving the cab, one evening, with, with all these weird changes, and anyways, I picked up a guy who was on his way to Israel, and he gave me a keyboard. <laughs> in the span of how many months did you get three keyboards? No, no, man, this is in this matter of a couple you know, maybe two weeks. Right. So then it was. It was. And I got. Yeah. I got three keyboards, <laughs> and then uh, Curvis, a friend of mine from Woodstock, uh, Curvis had worked on. Remember that uh, thing? Uh, Mine's a terrible thing to waste. Mm-hmm. And so he had he and his wife Elizabeth had moved to Detroit, but they were coming out here with a guy who good at uh, helping people break addictions, you know, spiritually, and. Uh, so, anyways, they'd asked me to help them get some stuff together, and uh, like sound equipment for what they were doing. And the last place we went to was the street corner in South Central L.A. And uh, so, you know, I wasn't doing the music. I got some guys to back up Curvis, and I had borrowed this uh, this equipment. Uh, this guy at St. Monica's actually had some equipment in the valley, and the deal was. I could use it, and he wouldn't have to go pick it up himself and get it back to him. So we ended up on this street corner in South Central, and uh, so they played, and afterwards, this guy comes up to me, his name is Otis, and he says to me, we've been praying for a musician to come work with our ministry, and uh, the pastor said, it's you. Wow. Wait, and, they, uh, just, they, they just pegged you right away. That's un... That's... What a beautiful... <laughs> What an extraterrestrial experience. That is absolutely yeah, awesome. But dig this. Oh, look, let me see if I can knock this out real quick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, so he, he looks at the equipment. You know, I'm thinking, well, maybe it's me that's going to get somebody to play with him, like I did for Curvis, you know? Mm-hmm. And he says to me, is this your equipment? I say, no. He said, maybe God's going to give it to you. You know, so then I did what they call put up the fleece, you know, just not out loud, but just thought, okay, God, if you give this to me, I know I'm supposed to. Do this thing, right? Is it called put up, put so, up the fleece? Put up the fleece? They call it putting up a fleece. Okay. Like in scripture, it's the story of a guy who puts the fleece out in the morning. Says, uh, uh, "God, you know, if you want me to do this, you know, uh, it'll be wet in the morning." Right. And then he puts it out another time. He says, "Even though the dew is going to be all around it, it's going to be dry." And that was his sign. So right. they call it putting out the fleece. Right. So you you laid it so, down. You uh, laid it down. Yeah. So <laughs> so I. Uh, so I'm trying to catch up with the guy whose equipment I borrowed to give it back to him, and he's not answering my calls. So I went down and caught up with him after uh, his mass. 
I said, what do you want me to do with your equipment? He said, I hope you can use it because it's yours. So now oh. I had four keyboards yeah. and a sound system. <laughs> and so, you know, like, I'm stubborn. You know, I said, okay, I'm bullheaded. I said, okay, God, I got it. I'll work with them. But here's the part, man, Jacob, take this. Here's the part that blew my mind. Like, maybe a year or two later, I realized what had happened. The first time I went to that church to sing, Curvis had come with me, and a drummer from, uh, I think it was a vineyard ministry named James, they had all come with me when I went to sing there. Now, the reason this guy gave me his equipment was he got healed of cancer, and he decided he wanted to go to a seminary, and he was giving away all his stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And what I realized later was that Curvis and James had prayed for him to be healed of the cancer. He got healed of the cancer, and so here it is, like a year later, Curvis is coming to California, and, and I... This guy get you know you know what I'm saying you know I'm trying to yeah I, I absolutely I'm, I'm with you 100 percent yeah so it was like uh, my well anyways I ended up in the street ministry it was uh, but you know but okay I, but, but but and that is uh, providence at work and that's a it's, it's and I've I've discovered providence probably in the last uh, year of my since I've started this program I mean I've been dealing with spiritual uh, guys and and you're just you're the latest and and then you relay a story like that and and so i i i understand that power i'm still um you know uh working on my uh dialogue with providence but that being said um what struck me is that it seemed to me that people uh forgive me i don't remember the names uh, alderson or maybe somebody else who was talking smack about you as a street creature almost uh, shaming you for doing something that God told you to do. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that came mainly from Bernard. I could tell. That, that, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Who is that? Who, why would he, why, what did he have again? Why was he so angry with you? And why did he, why did he try to go after you in such a, when you had such an enlightenment and then he tried to cut out, you know, basically just, basically say he's a, he just is a nothing. <laughs> you know, that's Bernard. He owned the ESP, the record company. And, uh, but what's his full name? I was just, huh? What's his full name? Stallman, Bernard Stallman. Where is he? Is he is he still with us, or is he is he somewhere else? Yeah, yeah, he is. As a matter of fact, he still has the ESP disc. As a matter, of, he was the one, the work band, Gary Moore work band. He switched to to put out the DVD, put it as Woodstock work band to try and capitalize on the Woodstock thing. But uh, I don't know. Bernard is my relationship with him isn't quite as bad as some other people but he told he's called me a few times and he called me recently to tell me that uh he's been able to get he, that he lost his catalog and the reason people weren't getting paid was these other companies uh weren't paying him and uh bad distribution i know the thugs he ended up in a court case with them for a while and uh but he said that a lot of stuff's been sussed out and he's trying to about getting me to uh, to say you know put out uh, a new box set or something, but you know, but but my relationship with him is a little different because I I got all my tapes from him. He gave them to me, no sweat. Right, it wasn't you I didn't get you stuff. didn't get into any litigious kind of thing with him. What I mean, I guess my point is, no. did he did he he gave you all this stuff, but he he had sort of an expectation for you when you went out to sunny California. And it was different from what you decided to do, so he seemed like he resented that. Yeah, well, we had, I had already been, you know, I'd left, uh, right after the album, I pretty much uh, 
wasn't with uh, ESP anymore. You know, I don't even know if the guys got paid. I never received a penny. I, I hope. I mean, Eric never said anything to me or when he was living up in Woodstock. You know, well, I'm gonna call Warren. I'm gonna call Warren Smith right after the show and get confirmation if he got paid or not. <laughs> yeah, cause I, I was took it for granted that they did. You know, you know I just you know what it is. I, I guess here's the bottom line. Um, I want you know people like Warren Smith and Jerry Moore and Ralph McDonald who's left us and Eric Gale who's left us. Those are the guys. Those are the gut bucket guys. The guys, the lifers, the Don Moores, the Ellen McElweens. The 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 people who have just who have who have gone about it the completely the right way in a, in an intellectual way in a in a holistic way and uh, I you know in, in our closing uh, uh, Jerry I, I wanted to ask you uh, did you ever get a chance to play at the Rhinecliff Hotel? Rhinecliff, which was Rhinecliff Rhinebeck. Rhinebeck was a, a little town about half hour from Kingston. And when we used to go to summer camp in upstate New York, near in the Berkshires, we would head into town into Red Hook. And uh, right. Rhine, Rhinebeck was a little appendage off there, and there was this funky little hotel called the Rhinebeck, or the Rhinecliff Hotel. It was right by the Amtrak station. I'm like, dude, if the Jerry Moore working band played, I mean, if you played the chance, you might have played Rhinecliff. I was like, this, if they played Rhinecliff. I remember going. I remember going over there playing. Uh, I don't remember what the club was, but I remember playing Red Hook and all of can you and, talk? Uh, can you talk about your your activity with the ministries now, as it relates to the homeless? Okay, uh, right now I'm not as active as I was, because uh, lately, actually, we kind of got a little band together, Curtis and I, and uh, we call it Faith Conspiracy, and we've been playing like at commissions and stuff. And uh, actually, there's this group, the Bogner Thomas Trio, like uh, uh, Charlotte and her her aunt and her her mother, you know, they're in the 90s, and they sing, and we back them up sometimes and play. But uh, in terms of the homeless, oh, I still work, there's a Hispanic ministry in Bajada de Dios that I work with, and we've been feeding people like on Thanksgiving, and got a nice plant there, I mean, in terms of the the, the buildings there that uh, would love to turn into educational center, you know. And there's a long story how I ended up being involved with that, but... Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, the whole thing with the Bombco Motel, where we were doing the first one I got involved with, uh, it's a long story. It was LAPD said it was the uh, worst spot in the worst neighborhood in the worst community in L.A. County. Hmm. And, uh, man, there was some great things went on there. Uh, Ani and Otis Hazlitt started it, and... Uh, the, uh, Virgil Wilson had moved in. He was living right there, you know. And we would have, like, on Sundays. In the beginning, we would go on Sundays, and we'd have, like, a service and feed people and stuff. And uh, it got to the point, like, the crack dealers would would even stop during the service. And I remember one time uh, I would take my, in the beginning, I had a little Casio keyboard, but we'd plug it into that speaker that I had gotten, and we'd be down there and doing some music and stuff. It was it was a gas. And then we started working with kids down there, you know, because I had taken this computer repair course. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we started, uh, I would get these old computers and we fix them up and we started teaching the kids stuff. And it was really cool because this uh, law firm in Century City came alongside us 
you know, it's a long story, but the, and we were taking the kids up there to be tutored, and, uh, you know, it was a groove. Well, the point was that, uh, you know, I mean, you, from a completely holistic and loving point of view, uh, Private Enterprise reached out and saw the quality of the work that you were doing and came alongside you like an angel's wing and, and swooped you up and gave these kids even more of an opportunity uh, as we move into a period of our existence where human cruelty is at an all-time high. Jerry Moore, yeah. I, uh, I know we can do another hour or so, and we'll have to do it off air. Um, I just wanted to tell you it's, uh, it's truly an honor. Uh, I know how much you appreciate my show, and I want you to know how much I appreciate what you have done for thousands of individuals through your music and your patience and your passion and your intelligence. And I hope this, uh, this interview can serve as, a, as an educational tool for those who want to learn about the holistic person. So I thank you very much for taking the time today. And man, really, I really thank you for what you're doing. What you're doing man. I've enjoyed listening to a lot of your archives, you know, like Gabe Balthazar, man. That's really important stuff. Otherwise, it'll get sucked. In. Yeah, no. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's vital, and it's and it's been a springboard to other things. So, um, we'll 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 be in touch. And as we go to as we okay, all right, man. As we go to as we as we leave, we're gonna fade out with uh with that this last track of music from Jerry Moore. Everybody, hang loose. We'll see you next week. You must choose your realities well.